How valid are the native land claims and what are the implications of this for the state? Native land claims are founded on arguments that while emotionally appealing are not logically sound. The arguments natives put forward are of three kinds and we will look at these in turn. These are, I was here first, I never signed anything, I'm human. Natives were here first, possibly. Unfortunately, empiricism being what it is, this cannot be conclusively proven. It is difficult to attach any significance to the fact, if a fact it is. The only time first in line means anything is with intellectual property. The first person who creates something owns it by right. By this we mean no one can dispute the rights of the created to the created without destroying the foundation on which he or she is enabled to live. In other words, the creator always has a right to what he or she creates. Remember, God created everything including logic if we follow logic where it leads, we will follow Jesus to where he wishes us to go. And we will also find the truth. Creator rights are the basis of human rights and provide the basis of our property rights. From this it seems to give us property rights over the earth, but such is not the case. The actual land and natural resources were not created by us. We have a personal right to their use, and this can be derived from God and logic. If we deprive others of their right to use what is needed for life, we remove our own rights. From this perspective, natives have the same rights as their non-native neighbors. However, this is not the issue. What is at issue is the native claim that first on the scene gives preemptive rights. Even were this agreed to, what would natives have rights to? They did not create the land and trees and so on, and indeed many or all of their cultures suggest no one can own these things. So far as God's creation is concerned, this is true. So what is their claim based on? What are they claiming? If people cannot own natural resources, what are they claiming a right to? The argument that natives are the first Canadians are tied into the argument that many make that they never signed a treaty and so are not under the jurisdiction of Canada. This would have validity if the claims of Canada were based on legal acquiescence. It may be true that the person of the native is not under the jurisdiction of the government of Canada, but that, but then on what basis is the relationship? How do natives have rights within Canada, if not as Canadians? If they are sovereign nations, on what is their sovereignty based, other than the complicit benevolence of the nation? Natives are treated legally as provinces, yet are certainly not provinces and not governed or related to in the same way as provinces are. However, whatever jurisdictional authority exists 
is exercised at the federal and not at the provincial level. It is not the intent of this short discussion to try and unravel centuries of confusion on this issue. We are simply looking at logic. And in so far as the law fails to coincide with logic, it has been ignored. Indeed, much of the problems we have faced is that the law rarely follows the thinking that logic provides. We have established that humans do not own and cannot own natural resources, but they do own what they create, and this includes national identities. Canada is a creation of the Canadian people through the British and Canadian governments, or in other words, the Crown. It is a political creation with a legal identity coextensive with the description given in the founding documents. Canada, in this sense, is a concept defined in its law. This has created immense problems. The political formation did not settle the issue of the natives, and now it is even more difficult to resolve the problems. It is not our desire to solve what has proved to be unresolvable. If the natives cannot claim what does not belong to them, it needs to be asked if the nation of Canada is founded on logic or emotion. As we noted, Canada is a political creation founded on formal law. This is the weakness that natives throw at it, because under formal law only what is written is law. It is for this reason that natives are so often arguing that because a right was not given away, it remains intact. It is here that this third argument is brought to bear. If Canada is founded on formal law, then the native claims and resistance is founded on natural law, or that law that is sought to be attached to all human beings. The land claims of the natives pit natural law and natural rights against the formal jurisprudence of the nation. Natural law suggests that possession is nine-tenths of the law, that the natives were here first and never signed anything to say otherwise. Their natural rights are still active. Canada counters with claims that either the natural rights do not pertain to a particular case or were ceded through one means or the other. In other words, natives are under the formal law of the state. We have stated we are not eager to be pulled into ancient arguments with no logical foundation, and if there was ever a dispute more devoid of logic, the one centered around native land claims is probably it. Natives are correct in assessing the nat national claims as self-serving and based on nothing but colonial power. Some might find the sight of a colonial power writing a pompous document to itself and signing it, promising itself to take possession of something to which it has no logical claim to in perpetuity in the name of a queen or not, something that is moving. However, there is no logical basis for thinking it is anything but legal rapine. A flag stuck in the ground to claim real estate for God and country robs God and misleads the country. The ceremony can never mean any more than the colonial power decrees that henceforward it will defend said lands as if they were part of its domestic landmass.
Drawing imaginary lines across the landscape may be useful to the military forces assigned to defend this property, but it has no logical merit. If, without logical validity, it can have no moral foundation either. So Canada is a fictitious invention created by a colonial power, perpetuated by a government that continues to rule because no one cares to challenge a claim other than natives. This is interesting because the native land claims are based on natural law. In this battle between the state and native, we say a conflict between legal rights and natural rights, each proving how illogical the other claim is. If either had validity, it would pose a real issue for the other one. But the fight is more along the lines of two robbers squabbling over their stolen goods. Canada, as a political entity, was created by law, a law that for various reasons did not embrace natives to the same degree as Europeans. Natives feel excluded, which they are, but therein lies the irony. How do two competing rights reconcile? Natural rights are based on common law and tradition. Legal rights are founded on the formal dictates of written law. Natural law says ancestral land is the home of the occupier. Legal rights say the state has to sign and legitimize possession with a formal license. The state did not deal with the issue for one reason or the other at Confederation, and so the common law or natural law, for all intents and purposes, remains in force. Neither has majesty or legitimacy to overthrow the other. It is not difficult to see legal rights as the rights of overseer and tyrant, based solely on force, or what was referred to as the divine right of kings, but what of natural law. We mentioned we have a right to what we create, but no right to what others have created. Whether one wishes to give the glory to God or not, no man can claim ownership of natural resources. We ought to be able to leave it at that. Native, native land claims are prima facie no more legitimate than the political land claims of the state. Natives no more created the rock, soil, of water, flora, and fauna than did the white legalist who so blithely laid claim to the geography of what is called Canada. Canada is a political concept without any actual physical correlate other than in the minds of the legalist. In short, logically, we are the possessors of a blank slate in which all land claims have been wiped clean, declared null and void and without effect. However, in fact, it is not so easy to eliminate personal ownership, since all we need is a certain amount of natural resources to survive, and no one can take away the means of survival from one without endangering his or her own survival. Ownership most people only understand public and private ownership. This is aided and abetted by a media and political environment that benefits from this bogus left-right distinction. Not that there is not a left and right form of ownership, but these extremes are simply propaganda pieces with little value other than to divide left from right. The most basic and elemental form of ownership is personal ownership. This is our ownership of what we use 
as private persons in our daily lives. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the homes we live in are personally owned. Ownership of the means of production is referred to as private ownership. There is a clear distinction, however, between these two forms of ownership. In one case, the ownership is for personal use and immediate consumption, and in the other case, the ownership is geared to investment and the generation of income. The other great category of ownership is referred to as public ownership, sometimes called socialism. But socialism has become a complicated term with different meanings. Originally, it meant the ownership of the means of production by the people, but this was never clearly defined. And so over time, it became synonymous with the ownership of the means of production by the state. Communism is publicly owned resources, with each person doing what they can and getting what they need from the state. Nationalization means much the same thing, but tends to be used in connection with individual companies, such as the nationalization of a power plant. Capitalists view capital as a form of personal ownership and an extension of it. This is a mistake, but we need to make the line of demarcation between personal and private more distinct. Even though capital may be derived from delayed consumption, this is not a prerequisite. Personal ownership is dedicated towards satisfying our personal needs. We cannot challenge this type of ownership without producing logical incongruities. Logic tells us that personal ownership is just and not easily challenged. There seems to be some justice in viewing capital saved from delayed gratification as the property of the one who underwent the deprivation. The question is, does delaying gratification entitle the saver to invest his savings in income-producing property? If we save up to purchase a house or car, no questions are raised. If we save up to buy interest-bearing bonds, then moral issues do arise. The problem about investment rights arise because we did not analyze personal ownership adequately. We assumed because these goods and services are being used to support human life, the individual must have a right to his life and that which enables him to live. But these are assumptions based on anything more than wishful thinking. If I have a right to a meal, where do I get the right and more importantly, where do I get the meal? Do I have a right to food because I exist? Where could such a right originate? If the world is secular, that is founded 100% on physical laws and factors, how could any right exist, especially my right to eat something? Materialism cannot provide us with any right, including a right to life. How do secularists provide for the right of ownership or the right to property, other than the argument that might makes right. Legalists assert our right of ownership is bequeathed to us by governments, but where did they get this right from? An agency cannot assign a right that they do not themselves have. If we proceed from a Christian standpoint and assume God created us and all things, we can easily understand that God as creator would have ownership rights over what he created. This is natural and lo logical. Because God is the creator and has total ownership rights, he would of necessity have the right to assign ownership rights to that which he created as an act of charity and love. Christians as the assigned caretakers of the planet are the natural caretakers of the planet 
expressed as the right of dominion. At the same time, we can assume that abrogating one's rights by a failure to exercise responsibility over what one has been given could and would result in the reassignment of ownership. This prediction is found in the stories of Israel and in observing the loss of lands of some people who failed to exercise responsibility over what they were given. Thus, in this framework, people are provided ancestral rights, but contingent on their doing the will of God. Our rights of ownership under God are always local. As a property of God, we have a right given by necessity and divine authority to what we need to carry out our tasks. This right of payment is enshrined in scripture and a logical necessity. The worker is worthy of his wages, and it makes no sense to muzzle the ox, because the one doing the work has to feed. But personal ownership was never the problem. Being creatures of God, created for the joy of God, we are entitled to an individual share of the things of God. When we take a stone and create an arrowhead and use this to hunt, the arrowhead is a personal possession. But when we use this arrowhead to obtain a bowl made by another person, we engage in trade. We know instinctively we have crossed a line, but we do not comprehend what has been done. People find it easier to protest against an individual gaining authority over waterfall or tract of old growth forest than they do about a child selling lemonade. Though the two situations are the same, separated only by the degree of wrong done. Why ought I to be able to profit from the energy contained in a waterfall? Apologists say the investor put up the money to own the resource and until he or she invests in infrastructure, the waterfall is not going to produce any income. This is true, and no one is saying that the investor is not entitled to benefiting from his or her investment. But this does not include the energy of the water, which we as humans did not create. Ownership is tied to creation. God created the universe and is its owner. He created us and owns us. He assigned the planet to us, his creation, to care for the planet. We, in this sense, own the earth, and us owners or caretakers are justified in taking out our wages. But this is personal needs use only, not commercial use. We did not create the stone, and not to benefit from the stone on a commercial level. As the creator of an arrowhead, we do have a right to the value added to the stone, but not to the core or original value as contained in the stone itself. Imagine you cut down a tree. You return the next day, and someone has cut this into firewood. You claim the firewood because you cut down the tree. The person who cut the firewood claims it because it was he who cut the tree into firewood. Obviously, both claims have validity so far as the labor they created. But what of the first creator, the creator who created the tree? What is his share and how to allow for it? The tree belongs to a third person. Should the one who cut down the tree and the one who cut the firewood not have to compensate the creator? Canada, as a natural resource, belongs to God. That's an assigned gift 
Those who occupy it each have a right to personal use, but that is as far as it goes. To this point, the native position is the more accurate one. We need to live lightly on the earth. We need to take from it only what we need for personal use. So long as what we claim is for personal use and claimed to be personal use, then the right is valid. However, this still is not the fulfillment of the Christian obligation we have to one another. To do this, we must extend a helping hand to one another. To do this, we need to be the church. Natives and legalists both went wrong at this point because they did not build the church as a way to help one another while respecting the authorship of God. The church is the only rightful owner of the world's resources. But we, the people of God, are the church. The ownership of our political jurisdictions is as a cooperative that pays members for the work they do, but the church itself, as a corporate body, retains ownership of all commercial capital. We cannot claim ownership of commercial capital as individuals. We own this wealth of the world as a community, as a church. As a tribe owned its land, so the church owns it la its land. Wealth over and above what the individual creates for himself and his family is owned by the tribe or church to be assigned to those who need it when and if they are creating wealth for the church, for the community. The creator is paid for his labor, but he or she does not and cannot own natural resources nor commercial property. This is owned by the community under the authority of the creator. So the land, to the extent it is being used for personal use, is owned by the person. The land, insofar as it is owned for commercial use, is owned by the community which inhabits and uses that resource.